Now, you might be aware of what I'm about to share, um, or you might not be, but I was reading a couple articles this week, and apparently, this probably isn't a big surprise, but texting is changing the way that we speak, right? And not just on our phones or on the internet, but actually things that are considered real words have changed. So... Now, in the Oxford English Dictionary, just recently they've added several common texting phrases to their official pages. And this may or may not come as a surprise to you, but a real word now, according to the Oxford Dictionary, is OMG. I I hear people say that's not a real word. Brad, that's not a real word. That is an acronym. That is not a word. Well, you take it up with the British, okay? So they started the whole English thing. And according to them, OMG, another real word, LOL, uh, along with the symbol for heart, as in I heart puppies, or one of my favorite, now sadly uh, destroyed t-shirts, I heart guacamole, that's a, a word now, and muffin top is a word now too, I... I just report. I just report. So I mention this because the addition of common text phrases in our everyday language has actually uh, developed some mild controversies, not just about whether they're really uh, words, but actually for people who want to live authentic lives of faith. And here's what I'm talking about. A little bit ago, Nightline ran a story with the byline, does texting OMG amount to blasphemy? And in the report, Talisha Roberts, or Reynolds, excuse me, writes this. OMG has a number of meanings ranging from excitement to disbelief. And for a vast number of American teens, it has replaced the exclamation mark. Then several teens are interviewed uh, in this Nightline report. And here's what Rachel Edelman, 15 years old, said. She says, you don't think you're saying, oh my God. You're just thinking, oh, like it's a surprise, OMG. It's nothing to be thought about, okay? Then Lexi Levin, 18, describes herself as a, quote, avid OMG user in text, and she thinks that using OMG is a long way from oh my God. To her, it's akin to golly, or gee, or gosh. And she says, that's kind of how I think about it. I don't know if, it's, if that's a fair way to think about it, but I, it's how I make myself feel better, she says. Julian Schneider, 14, agrees. She says, quote, if you say something like, oh my God, then you're using his name in vain. But if you're saying something like OMG, it's not really using the Lord's name in vain because you're not saying, oh my God. It's more like, wow, really? So the big question for today's sermon is, is using the term OMG to be avoided as blasphemy? No, it's not really the main point of the sermon. But I, actually, I don't... You, you believe that? I've got 30 minutes on why you should or shouldn't use OMG. I've just been sitting on it for months. No, no, that's not what we're talking about exactly. So I don't actually know the answer. And I think actually even that we're talking about this points to a bigger, more important question to ask. Like, why should we care at all about using the Lord's name in vain, as it's traditionally been put? And what does that even mean? So we're in week two of our uh, nine-week series on the Ten Commandments. We, we did two in the first week. See how I 
It's actually nine weeks on ten commandments. But this week, we're coming to the third commandment, which deals with how we use God's name. So today, we're going to look at how we can use God's name in a way that is filled with reality, that builds our relationship with God, and that also allows the world to get a picture of who he is. And we're taking this from Exodus 20, verse 7. This is a famous passage, which you've probably heard in some form, uh, where God gives the Ten Commandments, and in verse 7, he says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Traditionally, people said, do not use the Lord's name in vain. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So, what is the big deal about God's name? And I have to admit that if you take a step back and you look at this command and the list of the other ten, it can seem a little bit odd. So you've got commands about not killing people, (laughs) not stealing, uh, things like that, and then you have this don't misuse God's name. I think it's fair to say that those other things seem to carry immediately a sense of weight. And this commandment, to not misuse the name of God, doesn't, at first glance, I think, feel like it should be on the same level. Not that any of us want to misuse the name of God. And I can understand how no one would want their name to be misused if every time you wrecked your car or your team fumbled a football or you got cut off in traffic, you yelled out my name, I would be a little ticked. That would be a little annoying. I I don't want to be blamed for everything that goes wrong. So I certainly don't mind the fact that God would not appreciate being called out or blamed for every little problem that we have or every mistake that we make. And that makes sense, but is it really on the level of murder? You know, there are only ten, right? There's the big ten, and this one makes it in. So fortunately, I had a week and some time to look into this, and I, I think that what I've done is discover a few things that you would find helpful and encouraging. And it's all based on this big idea I want to give you first, That the name of the Lord is meant to be a sign of hope to the world. The name of the Lord is meant to be a sign of hope to the world. I am. God's name is important in the stories and the scriptures of the Bible. And I think it's connected to big themes that start in the very beginning. So in the first couple chapters of the Bible, it tells the story of God creating humanity. But what's unique about this version of the creation of humanity as compared to every other one that I've ever heard of is that humanity is actually made in God's image. And the first command that humanity is given is to increase and fill the earth and to rule the earth for God as his representatives in his name. And so in the ancient times when there was a king who had a kingdom, he would have busts, sculptures, uh, murals, mosaics, all types of things made about uh, the king or the queen placed all over the kingdom so that everyone would know that was the king's kingdom. And you had an image of that king there. So when the story of the creation of humanity is written for the Bible, the picture we get is of the king of the universe sending out humanity as his representatives, this is my realm, this is my kingdom. You are to represent who I am to the rest of creation. Now things get messed up. Now, that's a bigger story, but there's this entrance of sin into the world and things start to go haywire. Oppression starts and enters the world. Humanity begins to use the earth instead of cultivating it. Um, and then we use misguided ends instead of serving each other. 
and things get messed up and they get dark. But God says early on that he would not let this stand and he promises to renew everything, everything that was broken, everything that's corrupted by sin. And he starts by choosing a people to represent who he is. So first he sends us all out to be his image. Then it breaks down. So he chooses a people and he says, I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They will bear my name. And I'll make them a light to the whole world so that everyone will know that there's a good God who's putting everything right again. And the people he chose, interestingly enough, were enslaved in Egypt. And if anyone has experienced the results of a broken world corrupted by sin, it was them. And he called them to be the people of his name, to represent him to the world. And when he sent Moses, maybe you know the story, to them to lead them out of slavery, Moses asked God this question. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. So this is what Israel a nation in slavery needed to hear. I am has sent me. And the name says it all. The name confirms that there is a God and that God is in control. I am. It means that even in a dark world, there's a driving force that will demand justice. There's an order. There's a power that will put things right, that will stand up for the oppressed, that will bring healing. In other words, there is hope. The name of God is meant to bring hope to this people who's enslaved that something better is coming. The name of God is meant to build faith just in its hearing. It's a big deal because life is so hard. We need a sign that there is order, that life can work out, that good will triumph over evil. And all of that is communicated in God's name, I am. And this is something we see in every form of literature when there's a story where people, times are dark. People need hope. Evil is ruling the land or on the move. People are waiting for some sort of sign. And every great story has some sort of sign. King Arthur pulls a sword out of a stone. He's the only one that can do it. The king is here. Snow White is able to communicate to animals. And that's a sign to the people around her. There's prophecies. There's things that are happening, and it's starting to happen now. Harry Potter survives an attack from an unbeatable foe and is left with a scar on his face from the battle. That's a reminder to everyone that maybe, just maybe, this ultimate evil hero can be beaten. These are signs that point to people who are struggling that victory is on the way, that evil will not win the day. The name I am is meant to communicate all that and much more. That's what it took for people who've been in bondage and slavery for generations to have hope that it could change. This is why God's name is so important to him. God knows that we need hope, that we need a sign that he is real. So he gives us, as a sign, his name. And he assigns it to a people that they may display the reality of that name. That they should be something different that brings hope as a light to the rest of the world. There's a king who's coming to put everything right. 
And that's why, I think, at least in part, why the name of God is to be protected. The sign can't be misused or it starts to lose its power to inspire. In vain, you know, that traditionally this is do not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, that if you translate in vain, uh, it most literally means for unreality. You cannot use it for unrealness, unreality. It essentially is the process, using the, misusing God's name is the process of emptying out all meaning in the use of the name of God. And I think what this is saying is don't undercut the hope that I'm offering people by emptying my name of meaning. Or to think of it from another angle, use my name to communicate my hope in ways that are full of meaning. So let's look at how we can use the rest of our time, God's name, in ways that are full of meaning. And to do that, let's look at an interaction that Jesus has with people who've been using his name a lot. Now, these folks he describes here have actually been misusing his name. But in using them as an example, I think he points out what they're missing, and it's from that that we can learn so much. So this is Matthew chapter 7, just three verses. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, let's just not get on top of these evildoers so quickly. All right, these are people who've been identifying themselves with Jesus and his name, yet it doesn't work out for them. But they're the kind of people that you would expect would use his name meaningfully. So, for example, they're like theologians. They know their theology. So when they talk to Jesus, they refer to him as Lord, which uh, was the same word that the Greeks, and this was written in Greek originally, uh, described God. They used the word Lord in their translations of the Bible. So these people believe the sort of historical doctrines about the nature of Jesus, that he's God and man. They understand all of those things. There is also an emotional intensity in this belief. So they say, Lord, Lord. Whenever in those times you repeated something, it was for emphasis. It entailed uh, an emotive, emotional content to the words. If they just said Lord, it would make sense. It would have sort of that theological understanding to it. But when they say, Lord, Lord, there's this emotional intensity that comes with it. So there's an emotional intensity to their belief. And they've done the stuff, right? They're, They're doing things, powerful things in Jesus' name. They're prophesying. They're driving out demons. They're performing legitimate miracles. So they're active in ministry. So if you think about people who would be using the name of the Lord uh, with meaning, not misusing, it would be probably people who sort of maybe understand theology, who believe it with uh, intensity, and who do like a lot of like uh, Jesus-y type ministry stuff, right? But they're obviously missing something. What can we learn on the positive from what they're missing? Here's a few ideas. I think the name of God is full of meaning, which is what we want, 
when it's filled with reality. And so if God is I am, just think of this as being he is. And the key here, I think, is consistency. And scholars across the board indicate that one way we can use the name of God in vain is to be hypocritical in the way we follow Jesus. Namely, to embrace the name of Jesus but not really give him control of all of our lives. Jesus says that not everyone who uses his name will enter the kingdom. But, quote, only the ones, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who do the will of his Father. Now that can be the sticky part, right? I think we want, uh, we want religion to be intellectually engaging, emotionally engaging, socially redeemable, But do we want our faith to take away some of our sense of independence? Those who do the will of my Father. And I think recent studies would suggest that this is a pretty difficult thing. Probably throughout the history of humanity, this is a difficult thing. But particularly in our day and age, recent studies would suggest this might be a struggle. So a sociologist named Christian Smith has spent years studying the spiritual attitudes and beliefs, particularly of young people, and suggests that the most common approach that we have in America is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. You got that? Called MTD for short. I wonder if that's in the Oxford Dictionary. But let me explain it. This is the highlights of MTD. Uh, MTD is the belief that God exists, that most people, particularly young people, they believe that there's a God. And second, that God wants us to be good, to be nice and fair to each other. And the third big fact here, God exists, God wants us to be good and nice and fair to each other, is that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in your life, except when you need help. So God exists, he wants us to be good, nice, and fair, but he doesn't need to be particularly involved, except when you really need help. And this, I think, is a very approach a very popular approach today, but it's nothing new. So over 50 years ago, C.S. Lewis commented on this type of approach to spirituality when he wrote, by the goodness of God, we mean nowadays almost exclusively his lovingness. And in this, we may be right. And by love, in this context, most of us mean kindness, the desire to see others than the self happy. Not happy in this way or that, but just happy. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, quote, like to see the young people enjoying themselves, unquote, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Now, this type of approach, I think, leaves us mainly mainly in the driver's seat because God is mainly disinterested in the details of our everyday lives. And we, in fact, mainly have the ability to choose for ourselves what is right and wrong, with perhaps an assist from the Bible or other sources, but in the end, we choose. We're the authority. And this, I think, is very comfortable. But I also argue... And here's the catcher, less hopeful. And that's the key here. It's not about 
getting in line or doing what you're told, I think this approach to life is less hopeful. And I'm afraid that if this approach would, I'm afraid that this approach would unintentionally empty God's name of quite a bit of meaning. So the God of the Bible, Jesus in this passage, is actually very interested in our everyday lives. Not to micromanage, but the God of the Bible wants our lives to reflect something, to show that he's real and alive and active in the world now. If you remember back to the Genesis 1 story, we were created to show the world who God is. This is the hope of his name, that he's putting things right, that he's not disinterested. C.S. Lewis continues, he says, when Christianity says that God loves humanity, it means that God loves humanity. Not that he has some disinterested, really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in awful and surprising truth, we're the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you happily along your way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds persistent as the artist's love for his work and provident and venerable as the father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between lovers. And this is the the picture of a passionate God who cares about our lives and how we live them. He wants more than just momentary good times for us. He wants to see us renewed. Do you see the difference? He's a God that wants us to reflect him to others, wants us to be like him, that created us for something, that means, or that means that his opinions about who he is and means that he has opinions about who he is. And if we're going to reflect him, we, we, we have to change to fit him in his image. We can't assume that every impulse reflects who he is. You know, the image we have here is of God giving commandments to people who've been trapped in slavery for generations. When you're in slavery, it does something to you. And so the Ten Commandments... As much as their commands, they're, they're like meant to shock people out of mindsets that they've developed in slavery. The idea here is that we don't see it all, that we have patterns in our lives, we have hurts in our lives, we have brokenness in our lives that feels normal and natural, but it's the result of brokenness. And if we continue in those paths, we'll get more of the same. But the hope, even of commandments, is to give us a different perspective, to reshape our minds and how we think, to renew us. And we probably don't like the idea, you know, we, we sing a lot of songs about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, because we know that where God's will is done, right, that's supposed to be the way it's supposed to be. Yet the idea of a king is uncomfortable for us. But God describes himself in a lot of ways, but one way is as a king, because he has an idea for what communities where he is praised look like, what lives that follow after him look like, that reflect him. 
And our hope is that we can be in his kingdom where justice, peace, and love reign. But he's not going to remodel the kingdom to suit us. And that's the thing about kings. They think they get to say how things should be. And when we choose the parts of the king's instruction that we think are valid and which ones aren't, we invalidate the king as the king. Or that the kingdom is actually good. And we empty his name of meaning. And our hope switches from God to ourselves and our wisdom. And that's what we communicate to the world. Instead of communicating who God is, we communicate the best of what we're used to. And we elevate our name and put his down. Not on purpose. No one thinks, oh, I'm going to put down the name of God. Very rarely does that happen. But I think Jesus sees that. And if anyone gets to know you, I think they'll discover that as well if that's the pattern of our lives. And in the process, the name of Jesus is emptied of meaning in your life and in my life. And God's mission to have a people be the light of the world is hindered. And so we take his name in vain if we don't give up on our supreme confidence in ourselves. Instead, look to reflect who he is. So that's one way. Letting our lives be reordered, renewed. Trusting that we don't get everything. If there's a God, he actually knows something about what the good life is, what renewal is, what flourishing is. Second, meaning can be built into the, or God's name can be infused with meaning when it's founded in relationship. So we said, I am, he is, and this is, I am his. Jesus said, I never knew you to the people who misused his name. I never knew you. And we said last week that the Ten Commandments are really this love letter written to inform people about how they could invest in the relationship with God, to shake them out of patterns of slavery in their mind. We can fill his name with meaning also if we belong to him. That's the love letter aspect of it. God wants us to be his children, but not as employees. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These are all the things that they've done. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. We did all of this. Now give us what we deserve. And I think it's helpful to realize that the sign of hope is a sign of hope because those who carry it are imperfect. I know that I just said as a community we want to reflect what God has given us. But I think we also have to understand that part of the hope is when Philadelphia sees God working through people who need a lot of help. And we empty his name of hope when we act as if he is distant and unconcerned about how we actually live, but we also empty his name of meaning when we live as if we can live without grace. And it seems to me that even as we seek to follow him as a king in our everyday lives, that it's not so easy. And we don't get it right all the time. And 
we don't understand things and we make mistakes. And this is where we need grace and this is what Philly needs to see. Reality both in our lives together but also reality in our experience of grace. And this is how we can have and display hope in the name of Jesus. We make so many mistakes. Last night, I was supposed to pick up the donuts for the Father's Day reception. (laughs) By 7 o'clock, I remembered by 9 (laughs) p.m. So, all of a sudden, there's no Father's Day reception. I had one job. (laughs) Pick up the donuts. It's a light-hearted mistake. We figured it out. But my goodness, like, it's just a sign of all of the other things I mess up all of the time as a pastor, as a person, as your friend. The other things, like, it's not like this is the first time I've forgotten something, if we're honest. I forget things a lot. And sometimes it hurts people or puts them in difficult situations. And I, <laughs> that's who we're going to be. Sometimes we're going to forget the donuts. Sometimes we're going to say things that hurt people. Sometimes we're going to make really bad mistakes. But there's a value there if we can engage with those types of situations with humility. Not that we want to make mistakes, but there's an opportunity there. My point is that part of what will show the reality of a living God And fill the name of Jesus with meaning is how he works through our weakness. And hopefully we rally around each other. We hope and continue to trust when we fall or when the people around us fall. And as a result, there's the opportunity to live with an unusual amount of humility. And that's when God comes through. And the funny thing is, like, the whole thing in the kingdom of God is about renewal. And the hope is that you and I are being renewed, not that we are renewed, but that we're experiencing more and more of that. There's a tension in the kingdom of God. The already, the not yet, the renewed, the being renewed. We get tastes of both. You know, for some of these you today, this is going to be totally um, redemptive because you like federal donuts better than Byler's. For some of you, this is going to be a not yet moment because there's no bilers, there's federal donuts. In my mind, I don't see how you can lose, but, you know, that's the hope, is that God will take our mistakes, our sin even, and redeem it, turn it on its ear. If we're humble, if we're open to that, if we have grace for each other. And that happens through relationship. I am his. I can make mistakes and still be a worthwhile person. Grace, humility, redemption, meaning. And the last way that we can fill the name of the Lord with meaning is to represent him in the world. That's been a big theme throughout this whole talk. He is here. Big question that we started with today. Is OMG blasphemy? We should have taken a poll on that on the Connect card. <laughs> My answer, I don't know. I don't know. That, that, I have no idea. 
Uh, it's not a big deal to me. Um, <laughs> but I do think that how we use speech is important and that these things are important and can be helpful to everyone. So I do believe that wherever you're coming from today, that it will go better for you if you respect the name of God. And I believe that you'll experience more hope. And that's what God puts out in front of us. And I think these instructions actually are primarily aimed at people of faith. And the challenge for believers in the name of God is to display the reality of the name of God in our world. And our lives are meant to broadcast hope to everyone that he is here. I am is and is at work. And this has much less to do with how we speak about him, although that's important, and much more to do with the life that we live. Subject to the king, but also reliant on his grace. Let's pray. So our prayer this morning, Father, is that um, we could live lives that fill your name with meaning, that represent the meaning that exists already in your name, that don't steal or drain from it an ounce of energy or hope. And we just ask for grace to live in those ways. We pray that we would live in that spot of knowing our need and hopeful both and.